All right, we are back. Let's talk about uh, financial insanity, shall we? I think I want to begin here with the Vanity Fair article written by Michael Lewis. The headline of the piece was, One thing the author didn't worry about when he wrote his 2010 bestseller, The Big Short, was how to interest Hollywood. Who would or could make a movie about credit default swaps? As Brad Pitt, Steve Carell, Ryan Gosling, and Christian Bale bring the book's complex narrative to life, Michael Lewis explains his mistake. Noted Lewis. In early 2008, I started working on what became my book, The Big Short. I had written one about Wall Street, Liar's Poker, and pretty much assumed I'd never write another, as I further assumed that nothing would ever happen on Wall Street that was as interesting to me as what happened to me, or if I did, I'd be the last person anybody on Wall Street would want to tell about it. What caught my attention in late 2007 were the weird, amorphous, and ever-growing trading losses in the subprime mortgage bond market suffered by the big Wall Street banks. Citigroup's losses went from $6 billion to $40 billion to more than $60 billion. Merrill Lynch announced a $4.5 billion hit, then revised it to 19, and finally to more than $50 billion. Morgan Stanley announced that it had lost more than $9 billion on what appeared to be a bet by a single trader. The Wall Street banks had become the dumb money. Their employees, the putative best and brightest and surely the most self-interested people on the planet, were committing mass suicide. How did that happen? Someone had to be on the other side of the big Wall Street firm's stupid bets. I set out to find as many of these people as I could. There turned out to be about 15 of them who'd gone all in on the bet against subprime mortgage bonds. The group included some seriously interesting and peculiar people the sort of oddballs and misfits who would have a hard time getting a job at a big Wall Street bank. Several had come to the subprime mortgage bond market cold, with little knowledge of bonds or mortgages, and none at all of credit default swaps and collateralized debt obligations. Yet, they'd found a way to see what the expert insiders had missed, that the big Wall Street banks had become so bizarrely organized that it was hard to say where their stupidity ended and their corruption began. He then goes on to explain how a rather unlikely series of events took place that um, set up this movie to be made. Some good folks put up some money, and some good folks decided they would act in it. And apparently when writer-director Adam McKay read the big short and told his agent he'd really like to make it into a movie, and his agent reportedly tells his reluctant movie studio that the director might consider his lack of interest in making another Anchorman movie for them if they first let him make the big short. And apparently because Adam McKay's five previous movies have taken a total of $725 million while costing just $313 million, The Big Short gets made. He goes on to note that my role in making a movie of my book, the role of the author, has been essentially that of a spectator. He said, I think it's fair to say that the people who make movies from books would just assume that the book's authors be dead. I don't take this personally. When it comes time to turn his book into a movie, the author has little of value to add and has the power to become a serious nuisance. For his part, Michael Lewis decided he wasn't going to mind if they made a few changes in it. And of course, if you read the book and see the movie, you'll see that there, there were some changes. Related, related in no small part to the fact that movies are not the same as books. He does go on to uh, praise the director, Adam McKay, quite profusely saying that he was just the man for the job, because in ascending order of importance, he has the following qualities. One, he's kind of like these Wall Street characters. McKay began his career as a stand-up comedian. He studied improv in Chicago with actor Del Close, whom he still considers the most important teacher he ever had. 
That improv instinct to take what you get and build on it bears more than a passing resemblance to the behavior of the main characters in The Big Short. They come to a mushrooming financial disaster without any presuppositions. They knew nothing of subprime mortgages or credit default obligations or the other diabolical contraptions that led to the catastrophe. They weren't looking for a crisis in housing or a collapse in the system. They were just looking to respond cleverly to what the system proposed. Yes, he says, one way to look at the big short is as an extremely clever improvisational sketch. Another quality he has is a total absence of intellectual insecurity. Lewis says it takes a fierce creative will to come to grips with financial jargon and still resist the temptation to join the club of people who understand financial jargon. Noting that McKay worked hard to understand Wall Street, but rather than use that understanding as evidence of his own intellectual sophistication, he insisted almost ruthlessly on making his understanding comprehensible to others. And, noted Lewis, McKay has an almost pathological lack of fear of failure and ridicule. In his previous life, he was head writer at Saturday Night Live. And McKay says he used to think of 20 skits on the assumption that 18 wouldn't work, but that two would. I think in this we we see a link between our second segment today, which is about Michael Lewis and what he writes about, and our third segment today about Doug Kenny, because at the confluence here we have a writer for Saturday Night Live. Now, when The Week took a look back at the best movies of 2015, they did mention The Big Short. But the review of the movie was from The Wall Street Journal, which I thought was interesting. They quoted Joe Morgenstern of the WSJ as saying, Treating the 2008 financial crisis as a manifestation of human folly, it brings joyous irreverence to its mission of ginning up a true story about four eccentric investors who bet against the bubble, and it doesn't hurt that co-stars Steve Carell, Christian Bale, Ryan Gosling, and Brad Pitt are each smart, fascinating, and funny. So true to form, the Wall Street Journal paints a picture of this movie as, well, a, a story of a bunch of eccentrics who, who bet against the bubble. Note that in this review, Wall Street's criminality and incompetence gets sort of uh, pushed aside. Now, we must confess in this program, we normally would rather pay attention to who wins the Razzies than who wins the Oscars. But if a good movie wins an Oscar, more people see it. So because of that, we're, we're hoping that this movie, The Big Short, might come away with a little golden statue. It's not looking good, though. The Things like the Golden Globes uh, did not award it for its merit. And, and I have to ask, how is it the Golden Globes gives an award for best motion picture, comma, musical, or comedy, and in that category awards The Martian? If best motion picture drama was The Revenant, I mean, it makes sense that The Revenant is a drama. But The Martian is not a musical or a comedy. Given the vein of dark humor running to the big short, you can make a better case for it being a war-worthy recipient of an award for being a comedy, since it is rather more funny, and it's a better movie than The Martian. Anyway, a lot of you will see the movie, and that's a good thing. Fewer of you will read the book, and I think that's a bad thing. Perhaps I can whet your appetite for this volume by excerpting from it. I, I, I shall try to do so. In the prologue to The Big Short, Michael Lewis harkens back to his previous bestseller, Liar's Poker says Lewis. When I sat down to write my account of the experience, Liar's Poker, it was called, it was in the spirit of a young man who thought he was getting out while the getting was good. 
I was merely scribbling down a message and stuffing it into a bottle for those who passed through these parts in the far distant future. Unless some insider got all this down on paper, I figured no future human would believe that it had happened. Up to that point, just about everything written about Wall Street had been written about the stock market. The stock market had been, from the very beginning, where most of Wall Street lived. My book was mainly about the bond market, because Wall Street was now making even bigger money packaging and selling and shuffling around America's growing debts. This, too, I assumed was unsustainable. I thought that I was writing a period piece about the 1980s in America, when a great nation lost its financial mind. I expected readers of the future would be appalled that back in 1986, the CEO of Solomon Brothers, John Gutfreud, was paid $3.1 million as he ran the business into the ground. I expected them to gape in wonder at the story of Howie Rubin, the Solomon mortgage bond trader who had moved to Merrill Lynch and promptly lost $250 million. I expected them to be shocked that once upon a time on Wall Street, the CEOs had only the vaguest idea of the complicated risks their bond traders were running. That's pretty much how I imagined it. What I never imagined is that the future reader might look back on any of this or on my own peculiar experiences and say, how quaint, how innocent. Not for a moment did I suspect that the financial 1980s would last for two full decades longer, or that the difference in degrees between Wall Street and ordinary economic life would swell to a difference in kind, that a single bond trader might be paid $47 million for a year and feel cheated. That mortgage bond market invented on the Solomon Brothers trading floor, which seemed like such a good idea at the time, would lead to the most purely financial economic disaster in history. That exactly 20 years after Howie Rubin became a scandalous household name for losing $250 million, another mortgage bond trader named Howie, inside Morgan Stanley, would lose $9 billion on a single mortgage trade and remain essentially unknown without anyone beyond a small circle inside Morgan Stanley ever hearing about what he'd done or why. He goes on to note that I'd hoped that some bright kid at Ohio State University who really wanted to be an oceanographer would read my book, spurn the offer from Goldman Sachs, and set out to sea. Somehow, that message was mainly lost. Six months after Liar's Poker was published, I was knee-deep in letters from students at Ohio State University who wanted to know if I had any other secrets to share about Wall Street. They'd read my book as a how-to manual. Anyway, he closes the forward talking about Meredith Whitney, an analyst at Oppenheimer, who started pointing out in the fall of 2007 that the emperor has no clothes on Wall Street. Said Lewis, her message was clear. If you want to know what these Wall Street firms are really worth, take a cold, hard look at these crappy assets they're holding with borrowed money and imagine what they'd fetch in a fire sale. The vast assemblages of highly paid people inside them were worth, in her view, nothing. All through 2008, she followed the bankers and brokers' claims that they had put their problems behind them with this write-down or that capital raise with her own claim. You're wrong. You're still not facing up to how badly you've mismanaged your business. You're still not acknowledging billions of dollars in losses on subprime mortgage bonds. The value of your securities is as illusory as the value of your people. After the crash happened in late 2008, Lewis concludes in his foreword, 
There was by then a long and growing list of pundits who'd claimed they'd predicted the catastrophe, but a far shorter list of people who actually did. Of those, even fewer had the nerve to bet on their vision. It's not easy to stand apart from mass hysteria to believe that the most important financial people are either lying or deluded without being insane. All right, let's take the plunge deep inside the book where we're talking about an incident involving Steve Iceman, the the man that's played by Steve Carell in the movie version. Harkening back to March 14th, 2008, when uh, the proverbial doo-doo started hitting the fan, Eisman was scheduled to uh, appear on a stage alongside a famous investor named Bill Miller. Miller owned more than $200 million of Bear Stearns stock. After Eisman and Miller talked, Alan Greenspan, the retired chairman of the Federal Reserve, was supposed to get up and say a few words. As you'll find out if you see the film or read the book, by the time they got to Greenspan that day, not many people were interested. But I did want to quote from the book about what Steve Eisman thought about Alan Greenspan. Greenspan he viewed as almost beneath his contempt, which was saying something. I think Alan Greenspan will go down as the worst chairman of the Federal Reserve in history, he'd say when given the slightest chance, that he kept the interest rates too low for far too long is the least of it. I'm convinced that he knew what was happening in subprime and he ignored it because the consumer getting screwed was not his problem. I sort of feel sorry for him because he's a guy who's really smart who is basically wrong about everything. And I must confess, my dear listener, that at this point I must hearken back decades ago to the 1970s when I was a young man exposing myself to all kinds of new ideas as a young university student should. And I recall reading a book called Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal. The main contributor to that book was Ayn Rand. But the author of three chapters was none other than Alan Greenspan, then an up-and-coming, shall we say, laissez-faire economist. Now, it so happens I still have that book. And after reading all this Michael Lewis, I retrieved it from my bookshelf. To excerpt from Chapter 4 by Alan Greenspan, titled Antitrust, we have this. The world of antitrust is reminiscent of Alice's Wonderland. Everything seemingly is, yet apparently isn't, simultaneously. It is a world in which competition is lauded as the basic axiom and guiding principle. Yet, too much competition is considered as cutthroat. In a world in which actions designed to limit competition are branded as criminal when taken by businessmen, yet praised as enlightened when initiated by the government. It is a world in which the law is so vague that businessmen have no way of knowing whether specific actions will be declared illegal until they hear the judge's verdict after the fact. Yes, that's right. In the world of big business, it's terribly, terribly unfair. (laughs) These corporations are accused of acting against the public interest and, and are prosecuted under the heading of antitrust. This is terrible, because as we've all seen in the decades since Greenspan penned these words, corporations have tended to behave in a totally exemplary fashion. Greenspan goes on to analyze the railroads and note that, yeah, some bad things happened uh, on the watch of the railroads, but that's because the government gave them all that land. It's the government's fault. Well, I'm sure Alan Greenspan uh, scores a point or two the rest of that chapter, which I had a hard time reading, so I didn't. But one thing seems crystal clear now, that Mr. Alan Greenspan has a very funny view of fraud and bad behavior in the business world. We've talked in this program previously about how when, as Federal Reserve Chairman, 
Items were brought to Alan Greenspan's attention indicating massive fraud here, there, or elsewhere. And his reaction inevitably was, well, you know, we'll let the market take care of that. His subordinates kept trying to point out, this is not a market issue. This is a question of fraud. But uh, hey, it's good old Alan Greenspan. He wants to give the corporations every possible benefit of the doubt. And by God, he did uh, in such a way that uh, didn't really do the economy a whole lot of good. Anyway, I, I'm not certain I'm doing this book in Michael Lewis justice here by what I'm attempting, but, you know, we're giving it a shot. After telling this compelling story in The Big Short about these characters that bet against the market and won big, he closes out after that by going more general and talking about uh, the bigger picture, what, what's going on at Wall Street and also in Washington. Said Lewis, by September 2008, the nation's highest financial official, U.S. Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson, persuaded the U.S. Congress that he needed $700 billion to buy subprime mortgage assets from banks. Thus was born TARP, which stood for Troubled Asset Relief Program. Once handed the money, Paulson abandoned his promised strategy and instead essentially began giving away billions of dollars to Citicorp, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, and a few others unnaturally selected for survival. For instance, the $13 billion AIG owed to Goldman Sachs as a result of its bet on subprime mortgage loans was paid off in full by the U.S. government, 100 cents on the dollar. These fantastic handouts, plus the implicit government guarantee that came with them, not only prevented Wall Street firms from failing, but spared them from recognizing the losses in their subprime mortgage portfolios. Even so, just weeks after receiving its first $25 billion taxpayer investment, Citicorp returned to the Treasury to confess that, low, the markets still didn't trust Citicorp to survive. In response, on November 24th, the Treasury granted another $20 billion from TARP and simply guaranteed $306 billion of Citicorp's assets. Treasury didn't ask for a piece of the action or management changes, or for that matter, anything at all except for a teaspoon of out-of-the-money warrants and preferred stock. The $306 billion guarantee, nearly 2% of the U.S. gross domestic product, and roughly the combined budgets of the Departments of Agriculture, Education, Energy, Homeland Security, Housing and Urban Development, and Transportation, was presented undisguised as a gift. The Treasury didn't ever actually get around to explaining what the crisis was, just that the action was taken in response to Citicorp's declining stock price. He goes on, by then it was clear that $700 billion was a sum insufficient to grapple with the troubled assets acquired over the previous few years by Wall Street bond traders. That's when the U.S. Federal Reserve took the shocking and unprecedented step of buying bad subprime mortgage bonds directly from the banks. By early 2009, the risks and losses associated with more than a trillion dollars worth of bad investments were transferred from big Wall Street firms to the U.S. taxpayer. Anyway, great book, great movie, and I would love to read from Boomerang, Travels in the New Third World, which takes it where the big short leaves off, but by God, I've got to stop. I'll just close by noting that in that book, Lewis takes a look at what happened in Iceland, what happened in Greece, 
what happened in Ireland, what happened to the Germans, and what happened back here in America in the wake of the big short. And boy, it ain't a pretty picture. We'll try and talk about it on next week's show when we get our financial expert. By God, let's let's take a short break. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. When we come back, we're going to try and do 15 minutes worth of funny. Maybe some signs, but I think we'll stick to funny. <laughs> 